Okay, welcome back to the wonderful world of Mishlei. Uh, we are in Perik Gimel, third chapter, Pasuk Ches. So chapter 3, verse 8. Okay, Shlomo Melech says the following. Again, Perik Gimel, Pasuk Ches, chapter 3, verse 8, if you're just joining us. Rifus, again, we're talking about extolling the virtues of Chachma. So, Rifus tehi lisharecha veshikoi laatzmosecha. It will be health or healing for your navel and marrow for your bones. Very interesting expression there. It will be healing for your navel and marrow for your bones, meaning Chachma will. Um, what's the idea of the navel? So, the navel, Mepharshim say, represents the entirety of the body. In other words, in the womb, the entire sustenance of a person comes through the navel. So, that's the idea of Torah will be healing for your body. And will be the marrow inside of your bones. Okay. Um, what's the... What's the Torah trying to what's the what's Shlomo trying to tell us over here? Um, it, actually, I was speaking to somebody today, and uh, they said they were playing a game, a trivia game, some sort of trivia game, Jewish trivia game or something like that. And um, one of the questions in the Jewish trivia game was, you know, what's something that the uh, that, that that is good for the health or health or something like that. So it says, the Torah, the Torah is good for your health. The Torah is good for your physical health. Okay. Um, so is that what Shalom was trying to tell us? If, if you're sick, so go, go learn. Go, go, go learn some Torah. And in fact, the Gemara does say this. This is actually, actually the Gemara. The Gemara says, Chash Barosha Yasik B'Torah. Somebody has a headache, go learn Torah. Um, there's different ways to explain the Gemara. You know, some people say, even though you have a headache, go learn Torah anyways. Not, not that the learning Torah is going to cure your headache, but just, you know, even if you have a headache, go learn Torah. Um, or some say, you know, the, you start learning and you'll forget about your headache. But, but the Gemara doesn't seemingly, seemingly, the Gemara I don't think means that, that, that Torah is physically healing. So, so what does Shalom Melech mean when he says over here, it'll be healing for your navel and marrow to your bones. So, obviously it's a metaphor, this is a metaphor, and, and which fits because the entire Mishle is a metaphor and a parable. Um, when it comes to health, there's two distinct ways to look at it. Um, one of the critiques that you know more you know, holistic medicine has on the modern medical world that we have today is that you know modern medicine today is all about treating symptoms, but it doesn't really speak to the overall health of the person. Uh, there are many other things that can promote overall health, and then a person wouldn't have to deal with the systems. Uh, with the symptoms. I've, I've often uh, used this exact analogy, not realizing that it actually came from Mishle, uh, with regards to, for example, you know, a, a you know, a kolal, I'm, I'm biased, I run a kolal, but uh, a kolal in the town versus other, you know, chesed institutions, etc., that, that help people in need. They're, the, the healthier the community, the healthier the body, the less issues you have and the more people you have to address those issues, right? So a person can sit there and, and, and try to, you know, deal with all the issues that come up. You know, people have issues, people have, you know, emotional issues, whatever, whatever it is, children have issues. And you can pour all your effort and energy into dealing with the issues uh, while ignoring the overall general health. And then you end up in a game of whack-a-mole because the second you take resources and, and put it at, the, you know, at one issue... Another issue pops up over here, and then you gotta, you're constantly, you know, that's, the, uh, that's one way to look at trying to deal with things. The other way is to, to pour resources into the overall health of a structure, of a, of a system, of a community, of a person, uh, and then it'll produce more and more healthy entities that will then be able to manage and first of all, minimize whatever issues there are, and also be able to. Um, you know, create more of a stable base to deal with those issues. It's very hard to, it's hard to quantify that. I mean, it's, it's very hard to quantify, you know, how many issues have we prevented 
you know, by, by having good overall health, you know, uh, which is why, you know, a lot of times more attention is given to things that are fixing existing issues rather than things that prevent issues from starting in the first place um, because it's, it's not easy, it's so easy to measure. You can't possibly know uh, what would have happened otherwise. Um, but as, I think that's the general idea that Shalom is trying to say that, you know, the marrow in your bones and, and the sustenance of the navel, these are overall general health things. Uh, they're not specific cures for specific ailments. And, and that's the idea with Chachma, that if a person has Chachma, a person studies Torah, uh, it's, 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 it's an elixir of health in a very general sense. Um, it promotes general overall health and well-being to the point where there are not so many issues that a person, you're minimizing the issues a person would have to deal with. Um, on the topic of, 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 of physical health, uh, and we're talking about here emotional health, I do want to mention something that um, I wrote about in my weekly email this past week, and I think it's worth mentioning again. The idea, the Pesach in last week's parasha, the bracha to Yehuda. So Yaakov tells Yehuda, he says, "Chachlili uh, enayim miyayin, your eyes will be red from blood, uleven shinayim michalov, and your teeth will be uh, white like milk." So the Gemara learns from there. The Gemara says, "Don't read it, uleven shinayim michalov, that your teeth be white like milk, but ra- rather read it, the white of your teeth is better than milk." So the Gemara interprets it, uh, which simply means. A smile is better than... Giving somebody a smile is better than giving somebody a glass of milk. So what does that mean? What, what is, you know, it's the statement Rabbi Yochanan says. Rabbi Yochanan says, Leven michalav, The white of your teeth is better than milk. Why? It's better to give somebody a smile than to give them a glass of milk. Now why is it better to give somebody a smile than to give them a glass of milk? So um, the idea is like this, that, that, that a glass of milk is kind of the symbol of, of health, right? You know, nourishment, sustenance, especially by an infant... Milk is what an infant's nourished on. So giving somebody a glass of milk is metaphorically saying, sustaining them, you know, health-wise, health physically, giving them a glass of milk is something which is healing to them. What does a smile do to a person? So a smile promotes emotional health. We smile at somebody, and again, especially when it comes to, to infants and children. We've done all sorts of studies that children that grow up without smiles around them are, are, uh, are, are impaired emotionally. Um, so giving somebody a smile promotes their emotional health. Giving somebody a glass of milk promotes their physical health. And what Rabbi Yochanan is saying is that emotional health takes precedence over physical health. Meaning, if you have a choice to give somebody a smile or a glass of milk, better to give them a smile than a glass of milk. Now, this is a very, very important and interesting lesson. It's true that saving a life takes precedence over everything else. It's true that pikuach nefesh uh, we'll, we'll, we'll push aside everything. So yes, if a person isn't alive, there's nothing to talk about. Um, but that's when we're talking about being alive versus not being alive. What if we're talking about not a question of life and death, but a question of health, relative health? Um, a very, very stark example of this, just an, an illustrative example of this, uh, is something that we just lived through, uh, you know, a couple years ago, or last year, depending on, you know, um, and I would put it, the smile versus the mask, right? When you have a society and you have a question. So obviously, there's a, a, a balance and things that have to be weighed. But unfortunately, what happens is sometimes that it's a very one-sided equation where the only thing that's considered is physical health. And what about emotional health, right? Is that something that's considered? Right? So we're going to isolate everybody and we're not going to, we're going to all wear masks and we're not going to interact with people and we'll maintain our physical health. Okay, now again, if it's a question of life and death, that's different. And again, at times it is a question of life and death. But and I'm not saying a blanket statement for everything. But what, what I am making an observation is that, you know, I, one of the things that I think we, we did, did see is that, you know, yes, we have to be concerned about physical health of people, but we also have to be equally concerned, and even more so, with emotional well-being of people. I would, I would put the question this way. What's, which person is in a better position? This is a very interesting question. Somebody with excellent physical health, but poor emotional health? Or somebody with poor physical health, but excellent emotional health? If they have poor emotional health, odds are that physical health is going to suffer. 
Probably. Probably. Right? And I, I really do think that's the core of what Yochanan is telling us. Giving somebody a smile is better than giving them a glass of milk. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't give them a glass of milk, too. It's not, it's not always one or the other. Um, give them both. You know, be physically healthy and emotionally healthy. We're not saying it's one or the other. But the but it, 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 question of how to weigh the two, emotional health actually is more important than physical health. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that, exactly. That's, that's an excellent, excellent cite, yeah, citation there. Um, so again, let's say the Levin Mechalo. So, um, okay. So that's the idea over here in Pasuk Ches. Let's move on to Pasuk Tes. Now, these next two Psukim are, are very important Psukim, but at first glance, seem to be totally out of place. So let, let's, let's do them. Again, until now, we're extolling the virtues of, of living a life based on Chachmah. Okay, and then we get into positive test. Kabed es Hashem mehoncha, honor Hashem with your wealth, umeresh is called tvuasecha, and the first of all of your produce. Let me just go to the next passage quickly, and we'll go back and talk about it. Vimalu asamecha sava, and then your storehouses will be filled with plenty. Vesiro shikavecha yifrotsu, and the wine of your, your, your vats will burst forth. Very nice lesson, you know, uh, honor Hashem with your wealth. If you make money, ascribe it to Hashem, you know, uh, take off a portion of, 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 of what you earn and give it to Hashem, you know, dedicate it to Hashem's causes, and then Hashem will bless you in kind with wealth. Very wonderful lesson, very important, no, no problem with the lesson, but like, what's the segue here? We've been talking about how, how the virtues of of, of, of Chachma and the benefits of having Chachma. And all of a sudden, we talk about an attitude a person should have to their money. I mean, even if you want to say it's a detail in Chachma, maybe, but like, that's not, that's not the context here, right? It's a very strange, and I saw this, I didn't really see anybody ask this question, but it, it struck me as being very strange. What's the segue here? We're talking about how wonderful Chachma is, and again, we're going to continue on the next verses all about, you know, listening to Chachma and Musr and very much similar to the themes we've been talking about until now. And then you have these two verses that talk about it. Honor Hashem with your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. Again, very nice psukim, very, very wonderful lesson, but what, what in the world is the context here? Um, so th- this is, these are my own thoughts. I didn't, I didn't see anything else, but anybody s- speak this out. Um, you know, we did talk about going back a few more psukim, back to, to verse Five puzzle we said rely on Hashem and don't rely on your own wisdom. So you know, as part of having chachma, we said before is is that it's not about your own brain and your own mind; it's about relying on Hashem. And that's really what chachma is. Chachma is not somebody who thinks they're so smart. Chachma simply relies on Hashem. So perhaps, and I was thinking in, in, in the context of that pasuk, and what we're talking about now, um, I, I once heard a, is a, I don't know how well known this expression is, but it's a, a pithy expression. Um, you know, you could say about a person that he's a self-made man who worships his creator. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pithy expression that describes a lot of people. Um, a self-made man who worships his creator. A person very often realizes their achievements and, and their material wealth, right? They earn money, they, they, they earn something, they have produce, they have products. So who do they attribute that to? Who do they attribute that to, right? So a person will always show honor, deference, respect towards the source of their bounty, right? So if I look at myself as a self-made man, so I'm gonna look at myself in the mirror as being somebody, you know, look at me, right? Look what I made, right? And if somebody attributes everything to Hashem and is boteach Hashem, he's gonna take that same attitude and, and, and turn it towards Hashem. In other words, Hashem, you know, the pride that a person feels in their first, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a custom you know, a lot of people have to take their first dollar, either give it to stock or someone will take it and frame it and put it on the wall, etc. 
Like, why the first dollar? And like, why do that with the first dollar? We find is a mitzvah which means take the first fruit that a person produces and, and dedicate it to the base and make this, bring it to Hashem. Uh, we have the idea of the first shearing of your sheep. That you're supposed to bring to Hashem. What's the idea of the first? The firstborn child is, is, is sacred and firstborn animal is sacred. What's the idea there? So and yet the idea really is, is that, that when a first person puts in labor and effort and finally produces something, so the very first thing is a source of tremendous pride, right? It's a source of tremendous pride. And the question at that moment is, so to who do you attribute that? Do you use that as, a, as, as, as an opportunity to be prideful and, and, and you know, look at yourself in the mirror? Um, there's an old country song. Country is the only genre of music out there that has any value to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, th- there's an old country song, uh, Tim McGraw. Tim McGraw, I'm from the South. It's called Humble and Kind. The song. It's actually the, the lyrics are very nice. Um, so there's a line in there. It says, uh, "When the dreams you're dreaming come to you, and the work you put in is realized, let yourself feel the pride, but always stay humble and kind." Mm-hmm. That's the that's the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's healthy to feel a certain sense of pride. That's true, but at that moment when you first realize, you know, that the work you put in is realized. The first product of what you're building. So a chacham is somebody who's going to take that moment and use it to honor Hashem. Use it to turn around and say, Hashem, thank you for, for, for helping me get here. Versus taking that first moment and, and using it to swell his own ego. And say, you know, look how great I am that I was able to accomplish this. So I, I, I do think that this idea is really consistent with what we're saying before. Trust in Hashem with all your heart. Do not rely on your own wisdom, your own knowledge. Know Hashem in all your ways. Don't think you're too smart. Right? Hashem's chachma will be what's healing to you. And then the, the context, then, then he continues, honor Hashem with your wealth. Let the first of all your produce go to Him. The 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 the, 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 S, the the emphasis in this verse is not honor Hashem with all your wealth. The emphasis is honor Hashem with all your wealth. Meaning, it's natural to honor something with your wealth. It's natural to look at your wealth. Um, let me expand this a little bit more. The word kavod, and this is not something I plan on saying, but it's it's, it's an important point. Um, I heard this in the context of. Um, you know, the Omer. So the period of the Omer between Pesach and Shavuos, and we're told that during that period the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died. And the Gemara tells us they died because they were lonagu kavod They did not show kavod one to the other. Now, most people, when they hear that, they innately conjure up an image of people who are disrespectful. And they're they're not, not, you know, not acting menschlich. You know, we call menschlich. They're not... They're not being respectful to each other. And the reason why people conjure up that image is simply a, a, a part because of a language barrier. It's, it's, a, it's a mistranslation. The, we translate kavod as respect. And therefore the opposite of kavod means disrespect. It's really not, and, and it's a horrible, in that context, it leads to a very horrible conclusion. It leads you to believe that Rebekiva's students were somehow, you know, nasty to each other. They weren't nice to each other. You know, they said not nice, whatever. You know, and that's the connotation that you get. And, and it's, simply a, a, it's simply because of, of the language barrier that, that we come to that realization. We translate as not showing respect to each other which in our minds, lack of respect in English is disrespect, mm-hmm. right? Which means not being nice. I, I once heard the following definition of, 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 of kavod, which has nothing to do with being menschlich. <laughs> let, me, let me explain what, and what lenoga kavod zebazem means. The word kavod also comes from the word kavod, it means heavy. Kavod means heavy. The opposite of kavod is kal, light. 
It's not chutzpah. <laughs> you know, like, we, we, if, if you'd ask him, what's the opposite of kavod? You know, the, the chutzpah, you know, like, you know, being not nice, lack of etiquette. No, the opposite of kavod is kal. Kavod means heavy. Kal means light. What does it mean to treat somebody with kavod? Right? So, the reason why we have such a hard time translating this is because there is a profound lack of kavod in our world. What kavod really means is give somebody, treat somebody with a sense of gravity, sense of weight. There are certain people, when you're in their presence, that you get the sense that there's something substantial here. Right? Other people, less so. It has nothing to do with whether you're being a mensch or not a mensch. It has to do with whether you're recognizing the relative weight of the person that you're standing in front of. When you treat somebody with kavod, it means you're recognizing their relative value. That has nothing to do with respect. I mean, we use the word respect. Everybody should be treated like a mensch. That's basic etiquette. Kavod has nothing to do with etiquette. Kavod has nothing to do with not being a rude person. Kavod is somebody who's my superior deserves more gravity than me. I should show deference to them. I should stand up in their presence. I should speak to them in third person. The, the examples of cover that we actually have in halacha are examples like that. Now, if I don't stand up for somebody, does that mean I'm disrespecting them and the, the, I'm not being a mensch? Right? No. It just means I'm not showing them deference. It means I'm not treating them with more weight than myself, right? The reason why we have such a hard time with this in our translation is because respect, when we use the word respect in English today, do we really mean treating somebody as a superior? Or do we simply mean treating somebody as a human being? Right? We don't even have a concept of treating somebody as a superior. Like it's a given we're all equal. And the notion of showing deference for somebody else, of treating them as a superior, is almost gone from our world. So our concept of kavod is so watered down. Now, we, in certain circumstances, we have it, you know, royal settings and presidential settings and whatever. But some, to some degree, we have it. You know, when we're around uh, you know, Rosh Hashiva, somebody who's, who's, who's uh, you know, of, of stature, then we actually show kavod. And, and that's shown in... You know, the way we act around that person, we stand up for them, you know, the way we serve them. It's deference. That's what kavod is. So, this totally off topic, but the idea of lonogu kavod zebaz had nothing to do with mistreating each other. It's actually appropriate for peers to treat their peers with a sense of equal kavod. In other words, if, if we're in the same status in life, right, so then we should treat each other as peers. It's inappropriate to treat a peer with a supreme level of deference. That's not, we're not, we're peers. So I shouldn't show, to my parents, I show them kavod because they're my superiors. To my siblings, I don't show the same level of kavod that I show my parents. That doesn't mean I'm disrespecting my siblings, right? It means they don't have that same relative weight that my parents do to me. So covet is a system of, of relative weight, of deference, of, of covet and kal. So it's appropriate for me to deal in a lighter manner with my siblings than I do my parents. Right? That's, that's totally appropriate. The students of Rebbe Akiva treat each other with utmost, what we would call respect. I mean, they were nice to each other. They weren't. I mean, Chas would say that they were, they had a bit Adam Lechavero problem. They didn't have an Adam Lechavero problem. They treated each other as peers would treat each other. So what's wrong with that? They were peers. So what was wrong with that was, is that when you're dealing with Tamidei Chachamim, even peers have to show that deference and respect because it's not the person, it's the Torah that he embodies. So the problem was they didn't properly value the Torah within the other people. And they only treated them as peers, which in the realm of any other profession would have been normal. You know, for a professor to treat another professor as his equal is totally normal, right? For a banker to treat another banker on the same stature as his equal is totally normal, right? For a Talmud Chacham to treat another Talmud Chacham on the same stature as his equal, as a peer, is inappropriate. 
It has nothing to do with a, a, a Ben Adam Lechavero problem. What they were lacking wasn't Ben Adam Lechavero. They were lacking was a, a Hashivas for the Torah that was contained inside each other. Okay, that, that's, it's, a, it's a profound idea. Uh, that's what Kavan means. So when we get back to, to, to our Pasuk, Kabedas Hashem Ehoncha. Show deference. Kabed, what does Kabed mean? Kabed means to show a sense of gravity. So when a person first realizes they have the ability to accomplish, right? So a person's eyes are open. They feel like an adult. They feel like a productive member of society. Their eyes are open to a certain gravity in the world, a certain, a certain substantive quality that's existing here. Something was produced, right? When a person is a child for the first time, there's a certain sense of gravity. There's something awesome happening here. There's a kvedus, there's a weight to the moment. Something real and substantive is happening here. This isn't just, you know, having fun riding a roller coaster. This isn't just shooting the breeze. Something very meaningful and weighty is happening in this room at this moment. Where's that, where's that kvedus directed? Where does that kvedus come from? Is it from me as an individual? Is it from myself? When a person realizes his wealth, when a person sees Kvedas, he looks around and says, wow, look at all the things that exist. There's substance here. Okay, so to whom do I attribute that substance? To whom does the cover go? To me or to Hashem? And that's the Vazik saying, Kvedas Hashem mehoncha. Meresh is called Tavu Direct all that Kvedas to Hashem. A Chacham will direct all that to Hashem. It's consistent with what we've been saying before. Place your bitachat in Hashem. Don't rely on your own chachma. The person that relies on their own chachma will take all that kvedus and, and apply it to themselves. It's, it's, it's a testament to their own brilliance. A person who truly is a true chacham and, and learns from the chachma of Hashem will take that same covet and apply it to Hashem. Okay. Um, fine. Now let's go on to the next pasuk over here. Now we're back to talking about um, extolling the virtues of Chachma, but now we're back specifically to Musar. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Musar Hashem B'ni Altimas. The Musar of Hashem, and again, this is a theme we've talked about before, of embracing Musar. Before, until now, we talked about Musar of Vicha, uh, the, the Musar you get from your parents, listen to it. Now we're talking about Musar Hashem. We'll talk about what is the Musar of Hashem. But Musar Hashem, the, the discipline um, of Hashem, Bini, my son, Al Timos, do not uh, be disgusted by it. The Al Takots, don't reject it, Al Takots, Besochachto, and do not um, be disgusted by Hashem's reproof, Tochacha's reproof. Um, the Vilna just points out what's the difference between um, Musar and Tochacha. They're both. You know, forms talk about some sort of uh, reproof. So the Vilna says that Musar is in action and Tochacha is in words. In other words, when somebody is, um, when somebody is uh, reproved, is told off, I get, well, I won't say the word told off, but if somebody is, is disciplined uh, through action, that's called Musar. And when a person is disciplined through speech, that's called Tochacha. Uh, that's the Vilna Gaon defines those. We, we use them interchangeably, but, but to be very specific, the Vilna Gaon says that's the distinction between Musr and Tochacha. Okay, what is the Musr and Tochacha of Hashem? I understand what the Musr and Tochacha of a father and a mother are, right? Your parents, quite literally, will discipline you, both in deed and in speech, right? They'll punish you, they'll take away privileges, they'll talk to you, you know, in certain circumstances, maybe even physically hit you, but... But, but I understand what the word Musr and Tochacha mean when it comes to a, a person. What is Musr and Tochacha of Hashem? Right, the Pazik is telling us, do not, uh, don't reject the Musr of Hashem and the Tochacha of Hashem. So what, what is that? What is, what is the Musr of Hashem? What is Hashem's Musr? So all the Mepharshim seem to understand this is referring to um, difficulties in life, suffering. Suffering. People suffer. People suffer in life. All sorts of suffering. Says the Pasuk, the suffering that a person experiences in his life is Hashem's Musa. It's Hashem's Tochach. That's what it is. Don't 
reject it. Don't be turned off by it. There are many people that when suffering comes, get turned off by it. They get turned off by suffering. They even reject Hashem. They'll, they'll, they'll turn against Hashem because they're suffering. Says Shlomo Melech, it's Hashem's Musr. When there's suffering happening, it's coming from Hashem. It's Hashem's way of disciplining you. And don't be turned off by it. Don't be disgusted by it. Um, embrace it. Okay. Why? Let's see the next puzzle. A very, very critical, critical puzzle. Ki es asher ye'ehav Hashem yochiach. Because Hashem disciplines those that He loves. Uche'aves ben yirtzeh. And like a father does to a son, he will ultimately appease. It, this is probably a concept that we've heard before, but it's a pasuk. It's a straightforward pasuk. This is not a medrash. This is not a gemara. This is a pasuk. Ki hasher ye'ahav Hashem yochiach. Hashem only disciplines those that he loves. And the same way a father does to a son, when he disciplines, he will always appease afterwards. Meaning if a father has to discipline a son, even though at the time it's unpleasant, he will always make sure that afterwards they, they reconcile and everything's good and the love is there and, and the son recognizes that it's coming from a loving place. Yirtzeh means that they'll, they'll, they'll be appeasement. So Hashem's the same way. So my son, the term of endearment, when you see suffering, when you experience suffering, discipline from Hashem, don't be put off by it. Hashem only disciplines those that He loves, and He will ultimately reconcile with you, the same way a father would to a child. Um, again, extremely profound lesson, doesn't really need to be embellished more. I mean, it speaks for itself. Um, but it's something which, obviously, it's a lot easier to say than to feel. Um, it's something which, you know, many, many people have, have been lost because of this, where they've had suffering, and they haven't been able to see the suffering as loving discipline from Hashem. Hashem wouldn't do anything that's punitive. Hashem wouldn't do anything which is harmful or damaging to us. So why does it hurt? Why does it feel so painful? Because it's needed. It's needed. I'm, I, can't, I can't answer for that. I, I can't answer for that. Um, I can't answer for that. Um, the answer is we don't understand. We don't know. We, we know rules. We know that Hashem doesn't punish for no reason. And yet when we look at the world, there are things we don't understand. You know, I, the analogy that I've given before to people is that, you know, imagine somebody who's never seen a game of football in their life. American football. Uh, never seen a game of football in their life. And somebody shows them a rule book and says, here, read the rule book. So he goes and studies the whole rule book. He knows all the rules. Fine, reads all the rules. Then they go see their first football game. And the quarterback snaps the ball, center snaps the ball, and there's bodies flying everywhere, and there's 22 grown men jumping on top of each other. <laughs> and um, so somebody turns to the kids, no, so, so, what just happened? He says, I have no idea what just happened. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? You read the rule book, didn't you? He says, yeah, but I have no idea what just happened. He says, I'll tell you what happened. They brought the ball over the, over the goal line, and they gave him three points. He's like, you're lying. He's like, what do you mean you're lying? You see, you don't know what happened. He's like, I don't know what happened. I know the rules. The rules are you get over the goal line, you get six points. <laughs> so don't tell me that they got over the goal line and only got three points. Right? When it comes to Hashem's Ashkacha in the world, we never know what's happening. It's really a passage in the Torah. Moshe says, Hashem, Parshkisisa. Teach me your ways. Right? Hashem says, No one can see me and live. Hashem says, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock. Right? I'm going to cover you over with my hand until I pass by. Right? Then 
I will I'll lift up my hand. You'll see my back, but not my front. What does that mean? And Hashem is saying, you're never going to be able to look at this world as it's happening and be able to say, oh, now I know what's going on. That's happening because of this. And that's happening because of... We'll never be able to do that. Only Hashem knows in real time what's happening in the world. But that doesn't mean that we can't know the rules. There are rules. Hashem gives us rules about how He runs the world. There are certain rules. Now, the rules don't give us the ability to sit there and say, oh, so that happened to that person because of this, or this happened to me because of this. No, there's way too many factors, way too many variables that we have no idea. However, if somebody were to say, oh, this horrible thing happened and Hashem had nothing to do with it, I could say you're wrong. It's against the rules. Nothing happens without Hashem. But does that mean you're telling me this happened because... As far as what's happening and how do I interpret, I can't interpret anything that's going on. I don't know what I'm looking at. I have no idea what I'm looking at. What I think is good is not good. What I think is bad is, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a massive tangled bodies jumping all over the place. I can't discern anything that I'm seeing in my own eyes in front of me. But I do know the rules. And I can sleep well at night knowing that there are rules that Hashem follows. Right? And Hashem doesn't violate his own rules. And he told me what the rules are. Things don't happen for no reason. Things ultimately will turn out for the best. There is reward and punishment. Right? These are rules. These are principles that are infallible. So does that mean I can sit there and say, well, therefore that happened? Because No, it doesn't mean that. But does it mean that if somebody gets up there and suggests that this happens, you know, there is no reward and punishment or things happen for no reason? No, that's not true as a rule. It's not true. We know the rules. We have to, we have to distinguish the rule book from then being able to, distinct, to, 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 to translate and define what's going on in the world. Right? I think it's a very, very important. That's, that's how I look at it. You know, Hashem's Hashkacha, we know the rules. We can learn the rules. We can know what's not true. We can know what's not a possibility. Right? What's happening? Why? I can never answer why. But I can also say what's not a possibility. That I can't say. It's not a possibility Hashem doesn't care. It's not a possibility Hashem's not aware. It's not a possibility Hashem's oblivious. Those are not possibilities. What is the answer? I don't know what the answer is. So we should never do that for ourselves either when things happen in our lives? So I would, I would take the same approach. In other words, like this. Something happened in our lives. So, so what are the possibilities? I, I don't know. I'm never going to know, right? But it's, it's, Hashem obviously has something to do with it. What is he trying to tell me? I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to tell me. But I do know that if I pay more attention to him, it'll help. I, 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 in the middle of COVID, I made a little video. I don't know if any of you saw it. Um, I, there were a lot of people at the time that were asking the question of, you know, what's Hashem telling us? What's the message? What's the message? You know? And I also sensed that after a while, you know, people tried to give explanations and examples and Hashem's trying to tell us this and Hashem's trying to tell us this. And then at some point, people got a little bit frustrated um, that they, you know, maybe they tried something and it didn't work and it wasn't going away. And so I, the following analogy came to me and I, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I said there's a difference between how a, 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 a father typically deals with a screaming infant and a mother typically deals with a screaming infant. When a father hears an infant screaming, so it's very utilitarian, meaning the infant's trying to tell me something, right? It needs something. So I care about the infant I want to provide what it needs. So I go through the checklist. Okay, is it hungry? Does it need a diaper change? Is it tired? You know, you know. But once I've gone through that checklist and I can no longer figure out, and this is, this is like typical fathers, and I can't figure out what it is that the baby's trying to tell me, so then I get frustrated. Because like, I'm trying to help you. You're not telling me what you want. So what do you want from me? Like, what do you want from me? You know, like, 
and, and I and I got a sense that that people felt this way with with COVID, like some like. Hashem, I'm listening. Like, I, I want to be able to, to do what you want, but you're not telling me what you want. It's like, what do you want? Like, you know, just, if you tell me, I do it, but you're not telling me. You know, you're shaking the world upside down. You're, you're, you're screaming the alarm. You're trying to tell me something, but I have no idea what you're trying to tell me. It's not fair. And then at least the frustration. It's, it's like a frustration. Like, contrast that with a mother. So the mother sees the infant screaming. What does the mother do? Just picks up the infant and holds it. Does the mother understand the infant any more than the father does as far as what's the infant saying? What's the message? No. But what the mother does understand is that the infant is agitated and it wants the mother. So the mother says, I don't need to know what you need. I just know that you want closeness with me, so I'll pick you up. And I, and I, I really had this strong sense during COVID. Like, anybody who's asking, what's, the, what's Hashem trying to tell me? I almost feel like you're missing the boat. If, if, if that's the question you're asking, what's he trying to tell me? Then you're going into father mode. You're trying to decipher the message. And because you don't have, a pro, you don't have, you don't have prophets, we, we can't decipher the message. You're just going to get frustrated. Because you're not going to know what the message is. What really needs to be done is the mother approach. Hashem's trying to tell me something. You know what? I don't know. I don't have the ability to decipher what it is that you're trying to tell me. But I don't need to. I know the fact that you're screaming out to me on some base level is saying you want closeness. So let me just go pick you up and embrace you. And I still don't know what you're trying to tell me. But, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. Because beneath it all, what I'm really trying to say is I want you. That's really what I'm trying to say. So that, that, this is why I gave me a little video about this during COVID. It struck me as like, what's the message? We don't really know what the message is. Yet at the same time, we do know what the message is. Hashem is saying, I want you. I want you. Now, how do I do that? It almost doesn't matter. Just get close. Do something. Acknowledge that Hashem's screaming out, calling our names, and then take a step closer. And and the person who, you know, is paralyzed because they don't know what to do, like, that's the problem. It's like, if you're going to sit there and wait until you know precisely what it is that Hashem's trying to tell you, like, good luck. Like, no, you're not going to figure it out. So, What's the proper approach when, when, when there's clearly, we're suffering. There's something going on that's difficult to deal with. Hashem is clearly telling us something, yet we don't know what. How should we respond? It's like, I think the answer is, say, Hashem, I hear you. I, I don't know what you're trying to tell me, but I do know that you're trying to tell me something, and I'm going to take a step towards you. In whatever way I know how. You know, and the truth is, whether it's what you were trying to tell me or not, it doesn't really matter. Because deep down, you're just reaching out to me and I'm reaching out to you. And I, I don't need to know what the specific thing that you wanted me to do was. You know, that's how that's how I see it. So uh, that's how a person should, as opposed to rejecting it, rejecting the suffering. Hashem, why are you doing this to me? It's like. No, Hashem, you're doing this to me because you want me. It's not because you're rejecting me. It's because you want me. I don't understand what you want. I don't understand what I could be doing differently. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know. But if you're calling out to me, then you want me. That much I know. So I'm not going to reject that message. I'm going to embrace it and take a step towards you. You know, even though I'm in pain. I'm in pain because you're in pain. Whatever we, we know ourselves what it means to take a step closer to Hashem. You know, we know when we're closer, we know when we're farther away. We know the areas that, that, we're, that we're far away and the things that we can do better in. And again, a mitzvah, a midah, whatever it is, we know ourselves. And there really isn't a wrong answer or a right answer. 
In other words, to sit there and say, this is the thing, that's the thing. You know, in a relationship, and there's, you know, sometimes you get in a relationship, the, the couple gets estranged a little bit, you know, things get, things get cold, and, and there's kind of a, a distance between the parties, right? Does it really matter exactly how you take a step closer? Does it really matter? You know? Yeah, but should I get you a gift? Should I take you out to dinner? Should I... <laughs> if the husband's going to sit there paralyzed because he can't figure out what the right move is, <laughs> like, good luck. Just do something. You know what? And, and she doesn't really care what it is that you do. As long as it's genuine, as long as you're doing something to acknowledge that, yes, I don't like the distance between us. And it's uncomfortable for me when we're far apart. And I'm in pain and you're in pain. But we're not close with each other. So I'm going to take a step towards you. And then you'll take a step towards me. You know, and, and we'll reconcile. I think we get some sort of satisfaction, though, from trying to figure it out. I did, but I think... I mean, again, when we had Navua, different story. When we had Navim, the Navi would tell you, this is exactly what Hashem was trying to tell you. But in the absence of Navua, I think people try to make themselves look smart. But I think it's what it is. Like, everybody wants to think, oh, I know the answer. It's like, it's not about how smart you are. You know? I heard this actually from Ritzi was said this to us during COVID. He was talking. He was very not happy. At least there were a lot of like Rabbanim and, you know, who were like getting up there and giving their, their congregation specific things to do. He was very not happy with it. He says, what you're, what you're implying is, is like, this is the thing. And what if you do this thing and it doesn't abate? Like, you don't really know that's the thing, you know? So, so somebody asks, so, so what, what should be the takeaway from, from COVID? You know, it's just, the life's serious. The life's serious. Well, there's not a specific message. We, we can't take away a specific message. Well, I'm thinking of the times that there's been some big um, tragedy in the community, and then we're told, oh, it's uh, because we're not careful with national yeah, I, I think all that has to be understood in context. In other words, like this. All those things can be true. You know, and, and it makes sense for somebody to try, you know, for example, if somebody is a rough community and he understands that their community has a problem with Lush and Heart and there is, a, there is a, a, you know, a tragedy in the community and the rough feels it's appropriate to use this tragedy as a catalyst to try to get people to rectify that problem that exists... So that's appropriate. Like, that makes sense. It's not because the Rav is a crystal ball and he can sit there and say, I know that this is the thing. And I think we have to, we have to really have a healthy sense of that. Like, yeah, I don't know, maybe some Kubalim do. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not on that level where I can sit there. And, 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 I, and I usually don't take these statements that way. You know, when somebody gets up there and says, you know, we need to be mechazik in this, we need to be mechazik in this, I never take those statements as, the rabbi looks into a crystal ball and has a direct hotline to Hashem and Hashem told him, this is the thing and if you do this thing, then it's going to be good. Like, that's never how I relate to it. I always relate to it like, we can't do nothing. We have to do something. Now, as a community, as individuals, you have to do something. As a community, you have to do something. So as a community, you know, as the leaders, so maybe I want to channel the communal energy into a specific direction. Because that's something which is needed and, and it's something which people, given the tragedy, will be inspired to take a move in that direction. So I'm essentially just helping channel the energy towards a specific direction. Does that mean I'm saying that I have a direct hotline to Hashem and he told me that this is the thing? That, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I just see it as like, we have to do something. We can't do nothing. We can't sit on our hands. We have to get closer to Hashem. What's the most reasonable way as a community for us to do that in a meaningful way, well, here's something that, that we struggle with, or here's something that's meaningful that we can do. I, I once heard somebody ask Rebellious Svei, there's, there's different schools of thought in this stuff. I mean, I, you know, some people are more mystical, some people are more, I come from the more, you know, uh, let me deal with things I understand uh, school of thought rather than kind of the mystical, uh, mystical approach. You know, it comes to saying to Hillam even. It, you know, Marishi uh, Rebellious, somebody asked Rebellious, how, how much to Hillam is appropriate to say for a sick person? You know, somebody who's sick. 
Rabbi said, until you stop feeling it. Like, once you're no longer feeling it, you're just kind of saying the words. Like, at that point, like, what are you doing? You know, now there are other people that will just recite Tehillim all day without any real sense of feeling, but the words themselves, well, is there truth to that? I'm sure there is. Yeah, and, there, and again, there's different mahalto Hashem. Like, different people relate to these things differently. You know, the way, the way I was raised is like, we don't look at these things as just like magical buttons that we're pushing that manipulate the, the Shemayim. Like, I'm not saying that's not true. But what I'm saying is I, I can't live, I can't live with any real serious sense of life if that's my view of things. Is it true that things we do down here have, have, have implications up there? Of course it is. Is it true that specific things pull strings? Yes, but if my whole view of my Avedit Hashem is me just pushing buttons and pulling strings, and there's no realness to it, it's all just, you know, kind of magic, you know? That's not a Yiddishkeit that I can very well relate to. It's not one that I'm going to be able to find meaningful. That's not the way I was raised. So, again, I'm, again the, the, the Marshall, the famous Marshall, the Dudamagat says... Um, there was once a guy who was, was poor, uh, needed to know how to get Parnassa. So uh, he scheduled a lunch date with the rich guy in town. So he goes to the guy's house, the guy's giving advice, how to build a business, this and that. And the guy's just awestruck by the opulent surroundings in the house. And the guy's got a little bell sitting on the table. And uh, every time he wants something, he rings the bell and the servants come and they bring food and, and clear and everything. And the guy's just mesmerized by this, the bell and the servants and the house and the whole thing completely ignores all the instructions that the guy had to build a business and everything like that. Runs home, tells his wife, I've got the solution to all of our money problems. Got to go buy a bell. Right? He goes out, he buys a bell, sits down by his table, rings the bell, and nothing happens. Dudamagat says this muscle precisely about the show from Rosh Hashanah. He says, you know, the Zohar says that when we blow show from Rosh Hashanah, Hashem goes from his throne of, of, uh, of, of strict justice and goes to the throne of mercy. Right? Says, Is it true? Of course it's true. Does that mean we could ignore Hashem the entire year and do nothing and then just show up in Rosh Hashanah and blow a shofar and all of a sudden Hashem just goes from His throne of justice to the throne of mercy? Of course not. That's like, you know, so if we just relate to the mechanical external actions and we don't at all relate to what's going on behind it, so we're, we're like the guy who says, you know, all I need to do is ring the bell. Let me just ring the bell and then, and then everything's going to be good. You know, that's, 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 not, uh, that's not a Yiddishkeit that I can relate to, you know. If, if, if you build a business and you understand what Elul is and you understand what, what Rosh Hashanah is and, and, and you work on yourself and you try to get closer to Rosh Hashanah and then you blow Shara for Rosh Hashanah, okay, so yeah, then all it takes. Once, you, once you've hired the servants, once you've built up the business, made the money, hired the servants, had them buy all the food, then all you got to do is ring the bell and the servants will come and bring you food. You know, so is the Zohar true? Of course it's true. But is it meant to be taken on a very, very basic, simple level, that all I have to do is blow the chauffeur and all of a sudden everything is okay? Yeah, that's what the market says. Like, that's not, uh, that's not, uh, that's not how we do this. Okay.